This is a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org. It's, um, it's based on the Nicene Creed, and I'd encourage you to go and do a bit of research, go and look even on Wikipedia, of all places. Um, there'll be some information about the Nicene Creed and what it stands for. But it's interesting, <clears throat> I think, this week that, um, that we're talking about the cross as the center of the series. So the series is seven weeks long, and this is week four. So slap in the middle of our series is... A, um, something about the cross, because the cross is the center point of our lives. So let's just look at the creed itself. Um, I'm going to turn this on. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before the ages, God from God. This thing does its own thing. I have to go back to my own notes. Um, God from God. Where have we lost it? Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not made. Consubstantial with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us, men, and for all our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with scriptures. He ascended to the Father and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Um, my, even my iPad is doing its own thing. Uh, living and the dead. Um, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, um, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and, of the life in the world of, and for life of the world to come. Boy, we are doing well today. Don't touch anything, Percy. <laughs> so as I said earlier, the cross forms the centerpiece of our Christian faith. No cross, no faith. It represents many things for many people. You'll see people with jewelry, with, um, with uh, pendants, with you know, stickers on their car. And, and it, can, it can mean any number of things. But the one thing is certain about the cross is that it is a place of decision for all of us. When we get to a crossroads, if we don't know where we're going, there's no signs, we have to make a decision. Do we go straight ahead? Do we turn left? Do we turn right? Uh, and that's the same as the cross of Christ. We have to make a decision. It's a place to come to terms with yourself in relationship with God. For many people who get to the cross, they have to decide what they want to do at that point. It's not a, a case of, well, that's nice, it's a lovely landmark, but it's actually a place where we, we have to ask ourselves if our life is really going in the right direction and do we need to adjust our course or not and do we need to get our relationship with God correct and right and be in the right place with Him. It's also a place to remember the ultimate sacrifice. 
Now, in some churches, uh, especially the, the mainline churches, you might see a crucifix in the church with Jesus hanging on it. Now, in some ways, we, we criticize that, but it serves as a reminder of the sacrifice Jesus made. He hung there and died and bled for you and me. And uh, yes, he, 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 he died, he was buried, he was resurrected on the third day, but the point is, it's a symbol of our belief. It's a symbol of the, the sacrifice and of um, the price he paid for us. And this is what Paul has said in Galatians. There's two, two scriptures I'd like to read. But far from it, sorry, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the Lord, wow, this thing is doing the same thing, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Percy, quickly, can you just check that this thing hasn't got an auto advance on the built into the timing? Because it's just doing its own thing. And when we talk about um, uh, those scriptures, the reason why we look at them is, is because we remember that we did not do our salvation by ourselves. We weren't good boys and girls, and we didn't you know, help old ladies cross the street, and that uh, you know, makes us some kind of special thing. But it is the cross that does all the work for us. So we cannot, by any stretch of the imagine, imagination, ever say that we did this by ourselves. And then in Corinthians he says, For I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We can spend an awful lot of time thinking about theories, about uh, you know, what He might have done for us, and, and, and what other things have done, and what we've learned along the way, and, and, and stuff that, that we keep looking up on, on various uh, books and internets and things like that. But the real thing is that at the center of our religion is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And if we take Him and the crucifixion out of religion, we are left with a club. We're not left with a life-giving, uh, breathing thing that gives us life and leads us to life, but it's just a social club where we all get together on Sundays and have a lovely time together. We can have a braai, we can have a cup of tea. But if, it, if it's not more than that, if there's no Christ in the center of it, we might as well go down to Belgravia and play soccer. Because the benefit will be about the same. Now the Nicene Creed was a statement of orthodox faith. Now, there's just a background there, you can have a quick look at it. But the reason why they called the Council of Nicaea in 325 was because of various heresies that arose within the church. Primarily the heresy of Arianism. Now, there's, there's quite a lot that can be said about the heresy, but essentially, um, a man named Arius proposed that Jesus was not God, but that he was also not man, but somewhere in between. He was created by God, yes, and, uh, uh, and that's because he was a created being, could not be God. Now, the theory holds. It holds, it holds well. But because he was uh, special, like some kind of angel, he was superhuman because he was able to do miracles and walk on water and, and have incredible insight into, into the teachings of God's word. And so he said, no, no, Jesus was created, therefore he wasn't God, but he's superhuman, therefore he's not human. So he kind of puts himself into a category all of his own. 
And uh, many world religions have picked up on that. Uh, the Islamics have a, have a slight view on that. It's not quite the same. The Mormons hold very strongly to something very similar. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses also do the same thing. So you can see how the, 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 the uh, heresy has infiltrated life today. So we think, no, no, it was all put to death in 325. But it wasn't, actually. It continued, and Arius got support from various emperors, and he was allowed to be reinstated in the Catholic Church, and then he was excommunicated, and then he was reinstated, and eventually, at the Council of Chalcedon, they, um, they uh, were able to, to bring an end to the heresy once and for all, and write it out of, of uh, church history. But Arius also said that this creation of Jesus by God was Jesus, God's first act of creation. So before he made the, the world, before whatever mechanism came into place by which we all exist, Jesus was made. He was a created being. And so uh, he had divine attributes, but he himself was not divine. So I, I felt it important that we talk about various other uh, heresies that have crept into the church. Because, you know, uh, if you take a line, if you draw a line on a piece of paper, and um, on the same piece of paper, draw a point. Those of you who do geometry, you draw a straight line, and you have a point at one end, and a second point, you move one millimeter away from your original line, and then draw another line, you'll see that the lines diverge. What's the difference between those two lines at the end? One millimeter. But if you progress along that line for several kilometers, the difference will get greater and greater and greater. And that's exactly what happens with heresy. It sneaks in. If it was blatant, we'd say, what a little rubbish, get out with you. I'll try and quote Alan. I can't quite get the Irish right. But you, you, boot, you boot that thing out. You know it's a heresy. But heresy sneaks in. It kind of comes in, and, uh, and after a while, it takes root. And then we look back, and we go, oh, my goodness, we have moved away from truth. Now, a, a, a very well-known um, up-and-coming pastor in the north of the United States in Michigan, a um, man named Rob Bell, started the fastest-growing church in the United States called Mars Hill. Not to be confused with the other Mars Hill that was, um, what was his name? Mark Driscoll, who also been disgraced, but that's beside the point. But this is what Rob Bell says. Now, he's, he, what Rob Bell did was, was he was part of an, a, a movement called Emergent, uh, and they're really left field. I mean, they really are over there in a class of their own. They question everything about orthodoxy. Everything about orthodoxy. They even deny the existence of heaven and hell. Um, but uh, he, he has now left that church and has joined Oprah Winfrey to start her religion. And we'll talk a bit about her now, but this is what he said. Amazing how when I want to read it, it turns blue. I think culture is already there, and the church will continue to be given to, to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors, and they love each other and just want to go through life with someone. So he's talking about gay marriage here. And he's saying that you know, culture is more important than orthodoxy. It's more important than the word of God. 
And our best defense is Scripture. Well, I want to say our best defense is Scripture. It's worked. It's held its own for 2,000 years. And some of the Scriptures for 4,000 years before that, if we go with the whole 6,000-year teaching, um, why, should it, why should it change now? Why should it? And I think that one of the most important points we have to realize is that every single person needs an anchor point. And if the Word of God is not the rock on which our foundation is built and the rock that is fixed in a certain place, it too becomes a floating point. So how good is our relationship with God? How good is our religion when everything is just bobbing around on the ocean? So we have to say the Word of God is solid and it is the foundation around which all is built. Now what I will also say is there's a lot of things the Bible doesn't say. When it speaks about an issue, we have to take note. When it doesn't speak about issue, it's up to us to find out what could possibly take place. And there's, there's a number of things we can apply that to. But essentially, uh, we have to realize that the Bible is the only thing that holds true. And if we choose to divert from the Bible, we choose to bob around on the ocean. And Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He also says he is the word of God. So nothing about him changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And forever talks about the future. It doesn't talk about, you know, we'll get to that point, you know, in 2017, where we'll start leading, you know, gay marriage into the church. And by 2018, you know, we'll be allowed to, to marry, you know, nine-year-olds or, or marry your cat because your cat's very pretty and, and warm and cuddly. This is also what Rob Bell had to say about the virgin birth. What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry, and archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples, um, and uh, that thing's moving by itself again, and prove beyond a shadow of doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel um, the gospel writes through and to appeal to the followers of Mithra and the Dionysian religions, religious cults who were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods also had virgin births. But this is what Isaiah says. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The church is facing a lot of these things. One of the mistakes that this is Oprah Winfrey. One of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way. There are many paths to what you call God. I am a Christian who believes that there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. And yet Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Another one that's floating around is that there was no literal Adam. And everybody who talks about this, now there's, there's some theologians out there, some serious players who don't believe in a little Adam, but they all say this presents a problem for them. So while they don't think there was a little Adam, they have a, a theological problem that they can't solve for themselves. So there are scientists, and I think because science does point you in certain directions, if you, if you do DNA reverse mapping, you know, they've recently, recently published, but it's been around for a while, that the whole of humanity comes back to a group, a small group of people. But um, what it does is that they're trying to explain 
science in the terms of the Bible. They're trying to make the Bible fit their scientific theory. And I think we have to be really, really careful when it comes out of that. Scientists in the, in the dark ages, we call them, they weren't so dark after all, went out to prove the Bible by science. And what's slowly happened over the years is we've gone out to prove, to change the Bible to fit scientific theory. And that's a very dangerous place to be because just now we'll be denying everything else like the virgin birth. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're worried, I'm, I'm not saying hard and fast that God created the world in six days. I don't know if he did or not. I wasn't there. The Bible talks about six days, but it could be six ages because we talk about our grandfather's day and our grandmother's day and, you know, in those days, for example, and those refer to ages. There's also lots of theories that fit. But what I'm saying is we have to believe that God was the orchestrator of creation, that God made everything we see as we see it. Maybe there was a mechanism of evolution in place to, to change one elephant into three or four different varieties and one rhino into three or four different varieties, etc. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but God created things and they replicated after their kind. He made the kinds. And I digress a lot. But this is what the Bible says. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. One of the things that, that I find, that I, it's a trap that I fall into, is I think that people who lived 2,000 years ago were actually primitive and stupid. And that is clearly not true. I have to constantly remind myself, they may not have had electron microscopes, they may not have had Wikipedia, but what they had was ancient scriptures, and they had incredible brilliance. These people were not stupid. They could, could rightly divide the word of God. They could rightly figure out what was going on with culture. And they, and they could make statements that they knew God inspired to be true. And if one man was not present in order to sin, we actually don't have a religion. Because one man had to bring sin in and one man had to uh, bring salvation. So another, another teaching, which is which is great, it's, it's around the world, everyone loves it, is that Jesus was a folk legend. He was just, you know, like an urban myth. Yeah, there was this guy, he could walk on water, he could make bread out of rocks, he could turn water into wine, he could do these things. And you go, yeah, right. I shared this a while ago that I, I read a book um, called The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. And I got halfway through the book, and he spends literally the half of the book, and it's a massive book, it's like 300 pages long, uh, telling you of all the things that Jesus did that were completely out of character with the rest of humanity. And eventually I put the book down. I even shared this with Shep. I put the book down and I said, I cannot read this book any longer because if I do, my whole faith is going to be shipwrecked. And I meditated on it for months. And I thought, the only difference between everything that he has said and the Jesus I know is miracles. I opened the book and the next chapter was on miracles. So I knew that God had set me up to challenge my thinking about Jesus, challenge my thinking about stuff that happened 2,000 years ago and say, this is the difference. This is what makes him divine. Because the first half of the book makes him out to be a man and the second half of the book makes him out to be God. But if, uh, because of this, there was a historian named Josephus. There's a few others too. You're welcome to, uh, to go and research this. But he was, he was a Jewish theologian, and Jews did not like the Christians at all. 
But he wrote uh, a book called The Antiquities of the Jews, and he wrote this. And there arose out of this time a source of new trouble, one Jesus. He was a doer of marvelous deeds. This man was the so-called Christ. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross, those who loved him did not cease. For he appeared to them, as they said, on the third day alive again. So a Jewish historian attests to his, his existence, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. There's also the swoon theory. And some of us go, yeah, you know, it's just not possible for Jesus to come back from the dead. It's just like, yep, it's not possible. It actually isn't physiologically possible for you to die and come back from the dead by yourself. It's just not possible. But God can do that. But what they did to try and explain away this phenomenon was they said, no, he didn't really die. He kind of passed out. He swooned. Swoon means pass out, faint. Girls swoon when, you know, when boys profess undying love for them and things like that. But, but the one thing we have to remember, I put some text on the screen. We don't have to read it all. But the one thing we have to remember was that the Romans didn't crucify three people. It wasn't, let's crucify Jesus and two criminals and, 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 and then we say we've done crucifixion. There are historical records, records that say that they were crucifying up to 2,000 people a day. These people were masters of pain, of torture, and of death. And crucifixion was one of their major tools in all of this. There is no way that a Roman soldier would hang a guy on the cross and say, oh, I think he's dead, we can take him down now. No, they would make sure. And that's why in the, in the account of the crucifixion, they took a spear and they jabbed it into his side and they saw blood and water flow. Now, I'm not sure of all the, the medical reasons for that. Some people say there was a fluid sac around the heart that ruptures when you die. Some people say that the blood starts separating when you die. I don't know. But what I will say is that nobody survives that, even if, even if he was alive before that. And what the Romans used to do was they would check the guy out if he was still alive and, and he'd been up there too long. They would then break their legs so that they were entirely suspended by their arms and that would cause them to suffocate and die. So the Romans were not the kind of people who'd say, oh, no, I think he looks, I think he looks dead. We'll, we'll just take him down and give him to his family. They would make sure he was dead. And crucifixion was so brutal. Jesus had been beaten. The Bible says beyond recognition. People looked and they knew it was him because everyone told him. Not because, oh, look, you know, I recognize that spot on his left cheek. That spot was completely invisible. They pulled out his beard and whipped the skin off him. He was not recognizable at all. If you want to see a movie, The Passion of the Cross, I think depicts it the best out of any movie ever. And I still don't think that the censor board would allow them to play it if they portrayed it the way it really was. Jesus could not have survived crucifixion and the Roman soldiers would have made sure that he was dead. So another theory is that okay so he did die and they did put him in a tomb but the whole account of the resurrection was a farce. They actually came and stole his body and they shipped it away somewhere so that nobody would ever know that uh, while well, he was dead or alive. You know, he's just gone. But one has to ask ourselves why his disciples, 12 probably 11 at that point would make up the story. Why would you make up a story and then go and preach about it through the known world when you know that they crucified him, they're going to get you too? And 10 
out of those guys suffered painful uh, death. They were all martyred. The only one was John, and they reckon he died of an old age. Now, let's say, for example, there's 10 of you that get together gay. Let's make up a story. And let's tell everybody in the whole world. And let's keep in touch via WhatsApp or letters or whatever it was. And you find out that number one dude, Wani over here, Stuart, gets arrested, beaten, locked in jail, and then put to death a few weeks later. I, if I was in that group of 10, would have a serious rethink about my lie. I would go, uh, that didn't quite go as planned, eh? And Stuart took one for the team. So, guys, let's just disappear into the crowd and, and we'll just keep in touch. That would be the plan I would take unless I firmly believed with all my heart that what I was preaching was true. And that's what the disciples did. Why would they perpetuate a lie when they know they were going to die for it? And so we have to believe that Jesus actually did die and was resurrected. And that's the cross. Who's ever played this game? A game called Jenga. So if you've never played the game, it's made of a bunch of wooden blocks. They're about, so, well, I don't know, a few, well, in fact, there's variants on it. But you lay three blocks this way, and then on top of it, you lay three blocks that way, and this way, and that way, until you've built a tower. And the idea of the game is that you take a block somewhere lower down, out, you slide it out, and you put it on the top. And you must keep doing this, keep removing pieces from the bottom and place it on the top until eventually the tower falls over. Okay? You've played the game, seen the game, understand the game. So we keep taking pieces away from the bottom and moving them to the top. And this is what I, what I want to say as scripture for this, is that there will come a time when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. And this is what happens with the game of Jenga. The house is doomed to fall down. The tower will fall over. And this is what Matthew says. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And uh, it fell down. And great was the fall of that house. And this is what happens to our faith when we begin to doubt what God has shown us. When we begin to take in other teachings and say, I really got to change what I believe about the Bible because I don't really understand. I don't think the Bible's true. I, I, this part of the Bible has got to be a myth. As soon as we start allowing those teachings to change what we understand as fundamental doctrine, we begin to take a piece out of the bottom of the Jenga pile and put it on the top. And then we come along and say, well, virgin birth, hmm, impossible. Let me take a piece out and, and, and put it on the top. No, Jesus didn't really die. Let me take a piece out and put it on the top. He didn't really get hung on a cross. Let me take a piece out and put it on the top. God didn't make the world. Let's take a piece out and put it on the top. Jesus wasn't God. Let's take a piece out and put it on the top. Until eventually that thing falls down. And then we know that what we have is Sunday Club. And I've called this the house of Jenga. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have benefited 
which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now that's obviously talking about, in, in the context, they were talking about food that had been sacrificed to idols. But it's, it's beliefs that can be sacrificed to other teachings. Beliefs that can be sacrificed to idols or pet doctrines. One of the sayings I heard years ago, and I, and I believe to be true, is, is a man's best friend is his dogma. Now dogma is a belief that you hold on to. The Catholic Church uh, produces dogmas. And they say, this is, this is true. When the Pope is in office, when he's operating as the Pope, he's infallible. There's nothing he can say that's wrong. That's called the, the dogma of papal infallibility. And there's other dogmas, and we have our own pet dogmas. I believe that the world is flat. That's my personal dogma. Okay, I don't. But I could say something like that. But this is what happens when we begin to believe things like Rob Bell and Oprah Winfrey and, and Brian McLaren and a few other of those kind of squirrely guys thrown in there, that we'll no longer be children. We no longer, this is what Paul is telling us, no longer be like that. No longer adopt all these false teachings because you'll be like children tossed to and fro and, and carried around by every wind of doctrine that suits our personal dogma, by human cunning, by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. So, that was my introduction. <laughs> this is the story about God. And the story about God is the story of the kingdom of God. We believe, as, as um, orthodox belief, is that God started with creation. There was the fall when all men sinned. That God brought in a plan of redemption. And ultimately, all things will be restored. So the story of the kingdom of God this is, I want to read this. I read this in a book last week. I thought, this is brilliant. I want to read it. Um, it says this. For a brief period in time, when God created the world, perfect people walked through a perfect world in perfect union with God. The environment was lush and rich with a menagerie of animals that inhabited the air, the land, and the sea. Every physical and spiritual need was fully met. There were no unfed stomachs or diseases to be feared. The gardens were free of weeds and thorns. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, lived in perfect union with each other. There was no unhealthy competition, no power struggle, no vengeance or recrimination. There were no secret plots, no hard wor harsh words, no guilt, no fear, no shame, no rebellion against authority. There was understanding, communication, and love. There was no struggle with identity, with anxiety, with depression or addiction. There was no painful personal history to overcome. There was no fear of what might happen next, no mixed motives, no struggle with inordinate desire. There was no temptation to sin. With God, too, there was perfect union. People loved, worshipped, and obeyed as they were created to do. In the cool of the day, they actually walked with God in the garden, enjoying perfect fellowship with their maker. They were God's resident managers, placed there to govern what he had made, and they did their job well. God had no reason to confront them, and they had nothing to confess. All was right day after day. Life was better than anything that we can imagine from our sin, for our sin, uh, sorry, Life was better than anything we can imagine from our, from our sin-scarred vantage point. That's where we are now. But sadly, that didn't last long. 
In the most significant rebellious act ever committed, man and woman stepped out of si- outside of God's plan. In a second, it all came crashing down. All of the amazing beauty of the world was deeply and permanently scarred. In an instant, fear, guilt, and shame became standard human experiences. People who once lived in perfect harmony now accused, deceived, and fought for control. Weeds and disease became daily concerns. People began to desire what was evil and do what was wrong. Rather than to submit to God's authority, they lived as their own gods. The world that once sang the song of perfection now groaned under the weight of the fall. Sin altered every thought, desire, word, and deed. It created a world of double-mindedness and mixed motives, self-worship, and self-absorption. People desired to be served, but they hated serving. They craved control and nurtured delusions of self-sufficiency. They forgot their creator, but worshipped his creation. Rather than loving people and using things to express it, people loved things and used people to get them. Humanity's second generation even committed murder. They began to lie, to cheat, hide, and deny. People suffered at the hands of others, from momentary thoughtfulness to unspeakable acts of physical and sexual abuse. For the first time, people wept from grief within and suffering without. God saw this world ravaged by sin. He was unwilling for it to stay this way, so he devised a plan. It would take thousands of years. It would mean harnessing the forces of nature and controlling the course of human history, but he could do it. From the moment of the fall, for generation after generation, he controlled everything so that someday he could fix what had been so horribly damaged. Into this world, at just the right moment, he sent his one and only son. So the story of the kingdom of God is this. That the Bible is a love story. It started with a wedding. It'll end with a wedding. And what happens in between is the learning, the preparation for that wedding. Jesus was in the beginning with God. Jesus was the Word of God. We read uh, John 1. We can, we can really get a picture of what God is saying there. Jesus preceded Adam. And made Adam. Adam was deceived to want to become his own God. So the first sin that Adam really suffered to was idolatry that he fell to. But Jesus was made flesh and dwelt among us. Whole study in its own. Not going to go there. So Adam fell. And God had to implement a plan of redemption. And this plan involved a virgin. It involved the world, the word being made flesh and dwelling among us. Fully man and fully God. And there's a bunch of scriptures there you can go and read. But Jesus was both God and man. Jesus had always been God. He did not become human, a human being, until he was conceived by Mary. He was always part of God. Jesus became a human being in order to identify with us and our struggles. That's Hebrews uh, 2.17. He could die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. uh, uh, Philippians 2.5-11. 
because he who knew no sin became sin for us. One of the other heresies that's been floating around for a while um, is that when, when God allowed Jesus to be hung on the cross, he was basically committing child abuse. And it went full in the face of a doctrine called the doctrine of penal substitution, where Jesus hung on the cross to take our sins and take the punishment that we deserve. And a man named Steve Chalk a few years ago dared to challenge that publicly and had to be um, told to wind his neck in. But um, if any of these things were untrue, we would have no basis for our beliefs. If we keep taking blocks of Jenga out of the bottom and placing them on the top, eventually we have no foundation left to stand on. If there was no Adam, there was no fall. If there was no fall, there was no need for a plan of redemption. If Jesus were not born of a virgin, then scriptures cannot be reliable. And if you want to look at the whole doctrine of the virgin birth, the reason why God chose a virgin was so that the, the line of Adam could not pass through into, into Jesus. It had to be a, a supremely divine intervention by which God placed himself in, into a human body to be born. If scriptures are not reliable, then we are of all men most miserable. Our faith is in vain and we are dead in our sins. The virgin birth circumvented the transmission of sin nature and allowed the eternal God to become the perfect man. If Jesus had a sin nature, he could not be our redeemer. A perfect lamb to make the ultimate sacrifice is required and he would not have been perfect. If Jesus had not died on a cross, he could not have fulfilled prophecy. If he had not risen from the dead, our religion would be like any other religion. I can take you to the tomb of Muhammad. I can take you to the tomb of Buddha. I can take you to many, well, I probably could, I don't know where they are, but I could, they exist. We can go to many tombs of many religious leaders. But when we go to the tomb of Jesus Christ, it's empty. So in the midst of the garden, there were two trees, the Bible tells us. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there was the tree of life. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you surely die lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Then the eyes were then their, the eyes were of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. For then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach 
So I've jumped a bit there, okay, in the terms of Scripture. Now, lest he reach out and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove them out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every, every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, just a quick aside there. Yes, God, I believe God made Adam to be immortal. And when God said, if you eat of that tree, you're going to die, he really meant that. And so death became something that was going to be bound up in the heart of every man that came from him. And if you look at the genealogies, you'll see that Adam grew to a ripe old age of 903. Methuselah was the oldest guy. He, he went to 969. But pretty much after that, everyone's life started getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And uh, even um, Isaac was thought to be quite old at 130. So now we know that 130 was old age. And, and most people, you know, they, they don't look so good. They don't look so young and pretty when they're 100 anymore. They look like they need a bit of ironing and perhaps a bit of coloring too. But God said that, it, talking to himself, said, if they eat of the tree of life, they're going to live forever. And we don't want that to happen. So we have to prevent man from eating the tree of life. And I believe that God made the tree of life invisible to, to Adam. So eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had these fruits. Man questioned God's commandments. Man was already like God. He was made in his image. But for some reason, he thought that by eating it, he would be like God, even though he was already like God. It was, he was confused. But man got to understand the, the difference between good and evil. Before that, he'd only known good. Man became his own God because he made decisions that affected his own life. And I'm all right, Jack. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to look after number one. But the result was that man became cursed. Eating the tree of life would have given us eternal life. But you can only eat of that tree uh, if you repent. Now, I believe that Jesus was crucified on a tree. I believe he was crucified on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I believe it was done. Okay, it's metaphorical, of course. It was done so that he could become the curse. So that the curse of the law would be fulfilled. The curse that came in with Adam found its way into the law and manifested itself on every man. And the law and the curse of the law would be broken and the law would be fulfilled. And this would make us man once again in the image of God. So man would be able to eat of the tree of life. Jesus is the tree of life. He is the one who gives eternal life. And you can only eat of Jesus if you repent. So this is what he said. And I didn't write down the references for that. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever 
feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me, he will also live because of me. The last step in that picture of four things was restoration. For he is the likeness of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, and the ch- which is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So Father, today we come before you knowing that Your choosing a cross for Jesus to hang on was no accident. It was not just because that was the only tool available, but it was part of your ordained plan. That man, having eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and bringing himself a curse, could be redeemed by you becoming the curse on that cross, that center point of everything we believe. And because you hung on that cross, we can now eat of the tree of life. And today we choose to eat of the tree of life. We submit ourselves to you, Lord. We ask that you would feed us, that you would lead us, and that you would restore us to yourself. You have been listening to a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org.